Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here again. We're a couple weeks into this series, and, and today the, the, the story, the epic story that God's telling, it takes a turn. And so we're going to look at the conflict that arose in the story. We launched this series on Easter Sunday, and we were celebrating this. We were celebrating the empty tomb. The fact that Jesus rose miraculously from the dead. God displayed His power as, as Christ rose from the dead. This event changed the course of, of human history. And so, we celebrate that on Easter. And it was kind of like, when it comes to the epic story, this is the, the, the resurrection is really the climax of, what, uh, of, the, of the story. So we kind of started with the most exciting point. And then we began last week from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2 looking at the creation account, what God made. We looked at God's majesty, His power that was displayed in creation. And also we looked at the purpose that humans were created for. So we looked at the issue of identity and what is it God designed us to do in life. And so, now like a good and loving father, God gave Adam and Eve, He gave them clear boundaries for the garden. He gave them boundaries and He said, don't cross this line. And it's kind of like a... If you're a parent, uh, you know you may identify with this, but I didn't like boundaries as a kid. I look at them now as a parent. I look at them differently now as a parent. But I didn't like it when my parents were restricting what I could do. I grew up in a little town called Sonoma, which is just a little north of, of San Francisco. And it, it was a small town, really small population. It's kind of like you knew a lot of people that, that lived there, so it seemed like a pretty trusted community. So my parents, they, they were pretty generous with what they gave for us as far as freedoms. But they did have some boundaries. The first boundary was I could not cross Arnold Drive. I couldn't go past Arnold Drive, which was a major highway that would kind of lead out to the next town. And so I couldn't go past the highway, and I could not go to the liquor store. That was out of bounds as well. And it, it was, I think they were really more concerned that I would get candy than liquor in those early years. I'm talking like eight years old, nine years old. And so, um, so you know, they, they were like, no going to uh, the liquor store. We'll take you there to get candy at points if you save up your allowance. But, but and so that was my, and I, I broke that rule, sadly. And uh, I had some consequences. I have a scar for one of the consequences that God provided for me <laughs> from that. But uh, I needed to also be back uh, before dinner. That was another thing that they'd said. Just be back before dinner. And so, especially in the summertime, I would be gone all day, and I just needed to be back before, you know, we were serving food. And so, I mean, that seems crazy now. <laughs> Many of you, you, you have, you experienced similar boundaries, or maybe you had way more freedom than that. And those, that, those boundaries sound kind of crazy these days if I told my, my son, okay, look, you guys, you know, six-year-old, nine-year-old, 12-year-old, you can roam anywhere in the city as long as you don't go past the 91 freeway. Just don't go past the 91. <laughs> stay, stay, you know, south of the 91, west of the 215, we're all good. You know, east of the 15, and we're good. You've got a triangle you can work with. You can roam the hills of Cahalco. You can, you know... No, that, that sounds crazy. <laughs> I mean, times are changing. But I, I see now as a parent, boundaries are an expression of love. They're an expression of love. And, and here's the passage of Scripture that we looked at where God set boundaries for Adam and Eve. This is, uh, this is Genesis two fifteen through 17. It says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. 
saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, today we're going to look into how, how did evil enter into this world. With, with evil comes pain and suffering. Pain and suffering, they have a handful of sources. We're not really going to look at all of those today. We'll reference some of those. But pain hurts and suffering is agonizing when you're going through it. And anytime we experience pain or suffering to a high degree, we naturally start crying out for an explanation. Why, why am I going through this? Why is there pain in the world? Why is there all this pain and suffering? We look, we look at the news and we, why? We start asking, why doesn't God just do something about all of this pain? Now, one of the classic concerns in philosophy is, is the problem of evil. The problem of evil is it really comes up in a question, the form of a question. And here's the question. If God is good and God is all-powerful, then, then why does evil exist in our world? This is one of the most common or the more common objections that keep some people from really believing that, you know, that putting their trust in the God of the Bible. This prevents people from that. The logic goes something like this. Christians believe that God is good and that God is all-powerful. And since evil exists in the world, then those who object state that the Christian belief then must be wrong. That God must not be both good and and all-powerful. He, maybe He's one or the other, but He can't be both of those things. Either He is evil and He wants to cause us pain and suffering, or He is too weak to really prevent pain and suffering. Those are the arguments. And... That really is an attack on on God's goodness and on His power. And this message really isn't about apologetics and defending that Christian position that God is both all good and all powerful. Although, the answer to this question comes partly in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. And it's clarified more in the New Testament. So the answers to those questions or questions like that, generally you don't get, you don't get your, your, your answers from, from earth looking up. Generally, you have to lean into you have to lean into God's word and you have to begin to dig into God's truth and, and ask him for clarity. You start by looking at God's perspective and then you begin to look at life from his angle with faith. And so it's it's totally logical, as you'll see, it's totally logical to believe that God is both good and all powerful, and he has a perfectly good reason to allow evil to exist. Today what we're gonna do is we're gonna see what is it that happened that brought evil into the world. And it's going to require faith because as you struggle with pain and suffering in your own life or you have personal, personal battles with sin, that requires faith of us to trust God at this, at this level. Now love, as we were saying, love was a key motivating factor in God setting up boundaries in the garden. He said, look, you can enjoy all of this, but you... The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's, that's out of bounds. That's off limits. And it was love that motivated that boundary. Love plays a crucial role in, in, this, in this whole epic story. I want to invite you to take out this, this handout here and follow along. It's in, your, it's in your program that you received when you came in. and says this at the top. God promises redemption in spite of mankind's rebellion. So we're going we're gonna to really see that as we look further into the story. We're going to see the Bible's explanation for how, how did evil enter our world. So I want to look at this. Let's look at first the temptation and the fall. This is found in Genesis chapter 3. And so, Genesis 3.1 says this. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent 
He's crafty. He's, he's basically shrewd. He's, he's clever. Now, Satan, at this point, enters into a serpent. Okay? Enters into this serpent. And this, the enemy's attacks, Satan's attacks upon humanity are, are calculated. His temptations are calculated. He's cunning. He's clever. He's shrewd. Now, it says this. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, so this, this certain, so Satan speaks through this serpent to the woman and says this, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, they knew the boundary. This was not a matter of forgetfulness. Okay? It, sometimes with our sin, <laughs> or, or you know, you, you, if you're a parent, and you're like, hey, you, know, you knew that was off limits. Oh, I forgot. Oh, okay, you forgot. Okay. <laughs> or someone called your boss. You know, you show up late. You're, you're lazy, you get up late, you sleep in, and rather than, oh, I forgot. That doesn't work. You know, if we, if we apply the I forgot, it's kind of a weak excuse. But they knew the boundary. This is really clear because of what she says. Sometimes we claim to be just forgetful, but that's not the case with most of our sins. Certainly not here. Look at verse 4. It says this in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat, out of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Look carefully at what Satan is really doing here. What Satan is doing is he's questioning the goodness of God. This is an attack on the goodness of God. And this continually is attacked in our minds through our, and, and even through our culture, through messages about God. God isn't really good. That's, that's the message that Satan is, is, is deceiving them with. If God was good... Eve, then he wouldn't be restricting you. He wouldn't be setting boundaries around you if he was really good. What did they need to do right here? What did, what did they need to speak at this point? Adam should have spoken up at this point and reminded the both of them, hey, here's what God said. Eve had already said, this is what God said. Serpent, the serpent puts the pressure, Satan puts the pressure on her and begins to um, insert the lie there and tempt her. Adam needed to speak up. Just start repeating God's word. No, God said, we, we shall not eat from the tree, from that tree. And she, she said, yeah, don't even touch it. They needed to call out to God in this moment. What should we do when we're tempted? We need to speak the truth. We need to speak the truth about what God has said. We need to remind ourselves of what He said and call out to Him for help. In our kids' zone, in our children's ministry, we teach a, a battle plan and we call it, Say, Pray, and Obey. Okay, say, pray, and obey. This would have been good and really helpful in the garden if Adam and Eve knew, say, pray, and obey. Because one of Satan's major tools in luring us to cave into temptation is to get us to doubt the goodness of God. To get us thinking, if I stay inside the boundaries, somehow I'm going to be ripped off in life. If I obey God here, somehow I'm going to miss out. If I keep obeying, everybody else is going to have all the fun and the pleasure in life. They're going to really enjoy their lives. I'm going to get to the end of my life and I'm going to feel ripped off. And that I, I really did. That God withheld something from me. And so what do we need to do when we're being tempted? We need to say the truth from God's Word. We need to pray for God's help and then we need to obey quickly. We need to actually... We can't delay. We need to obey without 
you know, any, any delay. Look at what happens to them as they delay their obedience. Verse 6 says this, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, you know, most sin looks really good. It's really, don't you just want that? This will be really good. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Make no mistake, Adam, he's right there. He's standing right by her side, but he chose passivity. He should have stepped in. Now, the serpent was deceiving Eve, speaking to Eve. He was right there. What he should have done was he should have said, Hey, hang on a second. Gotten, you know, kind of gotten in front of her and said, Hey, you, serpent that talks to us right now. God said... That's off limits. And we're going to trust God. And we're, we're moving on. He didn't do that. He didn't step into action. Instead, he was passive. He played a passive role. He was, she was deceived. He sinned, eyes wide open. Verse 7 says this, Then the eyes of, of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloth. All of a sudden... Sin enters the world and immediately they feel ashamed. They feel guilty. They need to cover themselves up. Now, all of us can identify with them at this point. We've all done some things. We've all moved into areas of shame. And so there's this, this point of identification here where we realize, well, I'm, I'm like them. And they needed to cover up. We need to cover up. Whenever we sin, we, there's this heavy load of guilt and shame that just kind of begin to bury us. It makes us want to crawl into a cave or find the nearest dungeon and just hide away in that thing. We try to cover ourselves up. We try to cover our sin up just like they did with these fig leaves, but it was, it was insufficient. The problem of evil can't be fixed through just human effort. Now, the temptation itself would have been avoided if they had trusted God in the moment, trusted in God's words. In the moment, and, and even now, the problem of evil in our world can only be solved through trusting God to provide help and to provide covering. Now, after they sin, started coming consequences. So look at the consequences. Verse 8 through 19, you start seeing these things play out. And it says this, verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God from among the trees of the garden. Now, hiding from God is futile. Okay, If you've ever tried... In your sin, to run and hide, God continues to call. He continues to get your attention, to try to get your attention, to draw you back to Him. And so it's like, man, I can't get away. Where can I really go? The Scripture actually says, you know, where can I flee from your presence that you're not there? You're, you're everywhere, God. You're, you're all present. And so they're not able to escape. Okay? Verse 9, But the Lord God called to them and said to him, Where are you? Now, He knew where they are, or where they were. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, the man, he replies, and he, he, this is where the blame, the first blame game begins. Okay? We're, we're quite good at blaming other people when we've been caught in sin. Now, this is where the blaming begins. The man said, the woman, the woman... You know, did you eat from the tree? The woman 
And then he like points at God that you gave to me. So he's kind of blaming two people here. The woman, you gave her to me. She gave me the fruit of the tree. I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? Now we'll look at the, what the woman does. Eve, look at how blame is contagious here. The serpent, she's like, oh yeah, he blamed me. I'm going to blame someone else. So she blames the serpent. The serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam leads in blame and then Eve follows. This is a pattern. For, now for the woman, here comes the consequences. Pain and a power struggle. Pain and a power struggle. Verse 16. To Eve, God said this, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now pain is first mentioned here in the Bible. First time it shows up. Sin brings pain in childbirth. Now it says that, it says that I, will, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. I have no idea, ladies, what childbirth feels like. Okay? No idea. I have witnessed three times the reality of pain in childbirth. And it's very real. It's very real. And some of you, husbands, you, you've, you've been there. And then wives, you know, ladies, you, you've experienced this pain. It's real. God says here, I will multiply. So there was probably, I don't know, I'm not even going to speculate here, but somehow the, the experience wasn't necessarily going to be a painful experience, but now all of a sudden it's painful. Multiplying pain in childbirth also, there's this wrestling match that now would ensue between the man and the woman in marriage. And you actually see this. We see this today in marriages in our, in our world. He says this, your desire, your desire shall be for your husband. That word desire there, it means literally, it can mean a very strong emotion to have something. Or it also can mean a desire to dominate. So really, she's going to want to have and bring him under control. She's going to want to control him in order to get what she wants. This is part of the curse. This is part of the curse of sin is that there would be this power struggle now in marriage. She's going to want to try to dominate him and bring him under control. Wives will want to do this with their husbands. Wives, this is a struggle that you face with your husband. Why won't he do what I want him to do? Why doesn't he give me what I want in life? Why, why am I not getting my way? He won't come under my control. Things would just work a lot better around here if he would just do what I say. Well, here's why. He shall rule over you. The, the desire to dominate, God says, well, he's going to rule over you. You're going to want to dominate and control him. He's going to rule over you. The word rule here in Hebrew, it means to govern, to control, to be in charge. He's going he's gonna to be the one that God has assigned responsibility to lead, to be in charge, to set direction. And so what happens is round and round we go in marriages. Now, I've been married almost 17 years, and some of you have been married much longer than that. This frustration that God wired in through the consequences, what it does is it can drive us crazy, right? It can drive you crazy in relationship to your spouse as you're trying to just make this work 
there's this frustration that you feel. What the frustration is for is God wired it right into the consequences in order that we would have nowhere else to turn but to Him. That in our desperation, we would say, God, please help me. That, that Why is that you'd be praying, God, how do I submit myself to my husband? How do I follow his direction? God, would you help me to do this? And then husbands to be praying, God, how do I lovingly lead my family and my wife? How do I lovingly care for her? and set direction in a way that pleases you. We, the frustration that we experience is intended to, to frustrate us to the point to where we would turn to God and say, God, please help me. Because the Bible, after, after the fall of, of man and sin enters the world and these consequences start just occurring in our lives, now the Bible, most of it's written to people who are living in a sinful state, in a sinful world. And so the instruction of Scripture guides us how to have a marriage in these sinful conditions. So you dig into the Bible. You know, men, women, you dig in and try to ask God for help to make a marriage really work. I rarely find marriages working well without people really turning to God in this frustration. That, that's when marriage works well, is that when the difficulty drives us to God. Now look at, to Adam. Here's the consequence upon Adam. For the man, it's pain and trouble with work. There's a pain that now enters into work and it's attached to his responsibilities at work. And Adam, he said this, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, because God had already spoken on this matter, I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Because of that, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. More pain. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Now the ground is cursed to produce thorns and thistles. Work was now going to be a pain. Work is now hard. It's painful toil until you die. And you won't now live forever. Up until this point, we would have lived forever. But now, death enters. With sin, we start seeing disease, sickness, grief, mourning. All that comes from this point. Death enters the world. This is the life that we all know. No one escapes the consequences of sin. But there's hope. The love of God and His plan will prevail. Even in the consequences, He offers this. He offers the promise of redemption. Look at the promise of redemption. I mentioned earlier how the theme of redemption flows through. It's like the scarlet thread some call it, of Scripture. The fact that redemption is coming. And God puts this promise even in, the, in chapter 3, verse 15. And it comes in the consequences to the serpent. Look at verse 15. God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is what He says to Satan. I will put hostility or enmity between you and the woman and between your, your offspring and her offspring. Now from this point forward, there would be a perpetual struggle between satanic forces, the forces of the enemy, and mankind. There's just going to be this battle that, that he's describing here. Now look at what he says. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This cosmic war is fierce. It is real. We, we feel this struggle with forces that keep us blinded, enslaved, and ashamed. Now this is the promise that comes. It comes in the form of a prophecy about Jesus here. And so God says this to Satan. Basically says, you shall, if you look at the next uh, slide up here, it says, 
you shall bruise his you shall bruise his head. If you actually back up one slide there. To Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. This is referencing Jesus, how he was bruised by death. On the cross, Jesus was bruised by death. He was the offspring of a woman who was bruised by death, or who was bruised by his death. It's like the enemy bruised him on the heel. But God would have the final word. Speaking of Christ, here's what he says. He says, He shall bruise, you know, he shall bruise your head. The offspring of a woman, Jesus, would come. He would fulfill this promise of redemption. He would come as a man born to a woman, live a perfect life, offer up his life, and die on the cross for our sins. He would be, he would be risen. And as he rose, he conquered as king. He was victorious over sin. He was victorious over Satan. He was victorious over death. And so this is a fatal blow to the enemy. Because when you think of something, if you damage the heel of something, you can go on. But damage to the head is a severe, fatal blow. God's answer to the whole problem of evil was Jesus. He sent Jesus so that we'd put our trust in Him. And He he clues us into this promise right here in the consequences in the garden. Now, if God were to remove evil, here's how God addresses the question of, you know, the issue of if God is good, then, then why doesn't He wipe evil out? If he were to remove evil, he would have to take out all of us and everyone on the planet because all of us have been infected by sin. Every single one of us. We carry a sin nature inside of us. And since we're sinful, God would have to wipe us all out. And so I'm grateful that in God's love and in His kindness, He's giving us time and the opportunity to respond to Him rather than just Wiping us all out, he, he's patiently dealing with the problem of evil. He sent his son Jesus ultimately to deal with it. Second Peter three, it says this: it declares God's patience. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. God, the question is, God, why haven't you returned yet? Why hasn't Jesus returned to just finish history and time and, and and to bring all things to an end? But He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why has He not wiped out evil? It's because He wants more people to turn to Him in faith. He's giving more people time. Some of you, if you've not yet yielded your life to Jesus Christ, you know He wants you to turn your life around. To repent, as that verse is saying, He wants people to turn in repentance. It means I was going my way in life, opposite of God, and I decided to do a U-turn. I start going His way. I start living for Him rather than living and charting out my own course in life. Now, as we've read through this today, when sin entered the world, everything changed. What Adam and Eve experienced in their story, that, that's our story. Their story becomes our story. And you're here today, and you may not even realize how you deal with the consequences of sin every single day. I'm often reminded there's just this constant battle going on. There's no like real-life easy button I can just push to escape the hard things of life, the pain of life. And as you and I, we deal with these consequences... You know, some of it's just because of our own sinful choices. Other times, we're experiencing pain because of the choices of others. And then other consequences are just wired in from the, from the curse of sin. And just as Adam and Eve responded, there, there are several ways that we want to deal with these consequences. Here's one of the ways that, just common ways people deal with consequences. One is, we want to doubt God's goodness. We see the evil consequences of the fall and we start drawing the conclusion ourselves that God must not be good and all-powerful since evil exists in the world. Therefore, what do we do? We somehow think, if I'll just chart my own course in life, I'll get my way. 
You know, I can get what I really want. This was at the heart of Adam and Eve's decision to disobey. They were just questioning the goodness of God. Why did God give us a boundary? Yeah, you're right. He shouldn't have given us a boundary. So they chose to chart out their own course. What that did is it generates more and more rebellion in our life and more consequences come to us and to others around us as we choose to doubt the goodness of God. Another common way that we want to deal with these consequences is our self-justification. We start justifying our actions. Instead of readily admitting when we've screwed up, we do what Adam and Eve did. We start blaming other people. We start justifying and rationalizing the things that we do that are wrong. If I, for example, if I carelessly use my words in anger and I hurt someone, I battle to admit that that was really wrong because I can find all sorts of excuses and reasons why it was justified that I snapped the way I did. You know, well, if they wouldn't have said this or if they wouldn't have looked at me that way or if they wouldn't have treated me that way, then I wouldn't have yelled at them. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be holding a grudge if they would have just not hurt my feelings or, or whatever. And sometimes... We think we're justified because we really were hurt by someone. But still, we justify our own actions. And self-justification somehow makes us feel better, but it makes us feel like we can share the blame, but it, but it only damages us further. Another thing we're tempted to do is we're tempted to hide, just like they did. We're tempted to hide in shame. Often, whenever we cave into our sin, we can take the same approaches that they did with dealing with their consequences. And we can go into a default mode and just wall God off in an attempt to avoid the humility. What that does is only creates a huge barrier between us and God as we get further and further and deeper into sin and caving into temptation. What God wants to do is rather than there be this giant barrier existing between you and Him, He wants through your, for you to just approach Him and say, God, I admit to you, I've been doing a lot that was wrong. Here, here it is. Here's who I am. Would you forgive me of these things? Whether you know Him and you've and you've, you know, He's the Lord of your life, maybe there's this giant wall because of sin. The way, you, the way the wall comes down is you confess your sin. God says, I'm faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He, he basically ta- takes the wall and He tears it down through your confession. As you just say, God, I blew it again. Would you forgive me? God tears down the wall. You don't have to live with this giant barrier between you and Him. But if you've never received Him, then there's... Then it's overwhelming because you're like, God, I've, I've just lived a life independent from you. What do I do with this? God's answer is, hey, I sent my son so you don't have to carry that any longer. If you'll just bring your life to me and say, I admit I'm a sinner. I admit I've been doing life my own way. I want to turn around and start going your way. Would you receive me into your kingdom? Would you forgive me of my sin? You be the Lord of my life. If you do that, God tears down that wall, that barrier between you and him. And you begin a relationship with Him. And He looks at you and He sees you through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing promise of redemption. Now there, there's a whole other way than running to these wrong consequences. When we're faced with these realities, we just need to trust God who has redeemed us. This is what we keep coming back to. We, we just need to trust God, the One who's redeemed us. Have you ever stopped in the middle of a movie or a book because things were just getting worse and worse in the movie, and you're like, oh, I don't even want to watch this anymore. You, you shut it off. This is getting worse and worse. I'm not going to waste any more time. It's too dark. It's too depressing. Well, the consequences of this story that we're looking at, when they come up, they're not the final chapter of the story. So here's the spoiler alert. You know, We, we can actually find out how God will wrap up 
history in the book of Revelation. So don't give up in the middle of the story. If you're in the middle of like your life and you're thinking, it's just bad. And I read, okay, now I know why it is bad. Now I know why I struggle the way I struggle. Uh, don't give up. Check out this passage. This describes how if you will trust God with your life, then God makes this promise to redeem all of His followers ultimately from sin. Look at Revelation. This is the second to the last verse or chapter of the Bible. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is in the future. The end of, the end of human history. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them. As their God. Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. So he's reversing the curses at this point. Neither shall there be mourning. That's the, the process of losing people or hurting with people, nor crying, nor pain anymore. It's all, it's all being reversed here at this point. For the former things have passed away. What an amazing picture. God will restore all that is broken. The former things that he's referencing, that's, that's sin and that's all of its consequences and the ripple effect of sin. All of that stuff, all of it, all that we know in that sense will pass away and God, he doesn't abandon. He draws close to us. He will not forget us. And so we can turn to God here and now. You can do that even today. I want to uh, point out these next steps at the bottom of your listening guide. It says, For the first time I will commit my life to Christ. And follow Him as Lord. This gives you an opportunity to just take a step of choosing to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. This, in essence, this is, I'm becoming a Christian. For the first time, I'm deciding to stop living independent from God and to step across the line of faith and to begin a life and a journey of faith with Him. I'm ready to receive Him into my life. I want to commit my life to follow Him. Uh, John, he's going to come back up in, in a few moments, and he's going to tell you uh, where to mark that on, our, on your connection card so that we can follow up with you. Second on, on here is refuse to deal wrongly with the consequences of sin. If you notice that you're, you're choosing one of those, those paths that Adam and Eve went down, then to just make a commitment to, to stop going down that road and then last to trust in God when things seem to be falling apart. And this can be a constant struggle. But it's a commitment to do that. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word that clarifies the the struggles of this life. Thank you, Lord, that what we face here and now is not the end. Thank you that you're writing this story and, and we can look ahead. We can skip ahead and even see what happens at the end. And though there's pain and there's struggle and there's suffering and there's hurt and there's sin, God, you you desire to redeem. Thank you for being patient, wanting that none should perish. Lord, I know that there are some here that do not yet know you. Lord, I pray that you would, if, if you're calling out to them, Lord, that they would turn their heart over to you today. They would decide to follow Christ. Lord, for the rest here that are trying to walk with you faithfully, Lord, I pray that you give us the faith to continue on, Lord, to battle through our sin, to confess sin when when we cave into it, in order that we can just relate freely to you, the God who loves us and who's made a way for us to relate to you. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for this time that you bring us here. We pray that you continue to do your work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.